Welcome to Social Fish Distancing by Coastal Roots Radio, our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. It seems like the people really, uh, you know, really signed up to support us as fishermen. And I'm getting lots of people calling and saying, how can I support the fishermen literally every day? Some of the families here are low income and losing jobs. There is going to be a food risk to some of these families. Hello, I'm your co-host, Philip Loring. I'm joined by Hannah Harrison. And I'm Emily D'Souza. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're a relatively new international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling, and this week we are bringing you stories from around North America with a focus on a particular type of seafood, shellfish. If you're unfamiliar, shellfish is a sort of catch-all term that describes animals that live within a hard exoskeleton or shell for most of their lives, though there are some exceptions. When you're at your local grocery store or buying from a community-supported fishery, there are really three main kinds of shellfish that you're likely to encounter. Right. First, there are the crustaceans, like crabs, crayfish, lobster, and shrimp. There are also mollusks, like clams, oysters, and scallops. And then there's a third category that many people don't think of, imitation shellfish, such as the imitation crab meat that you might see in a California roll. These products are called surimi, which is actually made from whitefish, usually bearing sea pollock, and it has a similar texture and taste to the real thing, but usually a much lower price point. One of the really unique things about real shellfish is how harvesters catch and sell it. Unlike other seafood products, which can be flash frozen, many shellfish products need to be shipped alive, and they stay that way right up until the moment that we're ready to cook them. There are some exceptions, of course, like shrimp or scallops, which can be marketed frozen. But for clams, oysters, lobster, and many of the rest, these require special handling to get them to your plate as fresh as possible. Another thing that stands out about shellfish is that they're such a regional food product. Shellfish is rather unique in North American food culture for often having a very hyper-local identity. This is more common across Europe, of course, where many food varieties like cheese and cured meats and wine often have legally protected designations of origin. Our corporate culture on this side of the pond, though, hasn't been very friendly to that kind of regional culture. But with seafood, locale still matters for many. I grew up in Maine, for example, and everybody knows that Maine is famous for its lobster. It's absolutely my favorite shellfish. But if I'm traveling, I'm equally as keen for the regional specialty. Maryland blue crab cakes, for example, or if I'm in San Francisco, I'm hungry from clam chowder in a sourdough bowl. Or in the Florida Keys, it is all about those conch fritters. So now my mouth is watering. But you know, it's interesting that while all of those dishes are definitely shellfish, some of them require a wild harvest and others are actually grown. Shellfish aquaculture, known as mariculture, is often farmed in the wild environment, and together with a wild harvest, both are important means of getting shellfish to our plates. Today, we're going to visit with people who both grow and harvest shellfish and hear how they've been coping with COVID-19. So let's start out with someone who is doing both. My name is Mark Hooper. I live in uh, the central coast of North Carolina. I have a very small fish house. that I own with my wife, Penny, called Hooper Family Seafood. And we have been here quite a while in this business. And uh, currently we, um, we do hard crabs, blue crabs, soft shell crabs, 
and I grow clams. The the hard crabs we uh, in in the springtime they're, they're they're pretty scarce, so we get a, a very good price, and they're being picked up by um, uh, trucks coming out of Virginia and Maryland. And the soft shells uh, up until this year we had sent those to the uh, to New York City into the uh, large market there, and and that was shut down for the first time this year. We we've shipped for 40 years to New York, except for this year. Now, due to the losses of these markets, Mark has adapted to selling his catch into a local market, something he's been able to do in part because he participates in a community-supported fishery. I was really impressed by the, uh, by the demand. And uh, I, we also work with a, a community-supported fishery called Walking Fish. We're in the midst of a very nice spring season. It seems like the people really, uh, you know, really signed up to support us as fishermen once it it became obvious that fishermen were having, you know, issues with moving product. Uh, so much, so much seafood goes into restaurants. You know, seventy percent, I think, is how what it works out to. So uh, it was really cool how they did that. And then, um, and we got we get more money for that when we operate with walking fish. So that was been that's been very good. You know, they were so high priced, you know, we were getting 50 and $60 a dozen for a live crab. And it just felt like the local people couldn't absorb that type of money. Um, so we ended up selling stuff for 36 and 40, 20 to 25% uh, less value. It's difficult uh, as especially the spring because fishermen weren't fishing because they didn't have an outlet for their product. And then I think there was just, uh, it almost seemed like a general malaise, if that's the right word, that, you know, we're in this thing, you know, poor me and blah, 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 rather than really working out and, you know, being creative and, and trying to find your markets. But we've always done that. We've always kind of developed our own markets anyways. Does Hooper Family Seafood have a retail portion to your your business no i mean well I, I sell stuff here especially the the clams uh but we, we sell crabs and clams but um you know the aquaculture down this way has been a little bit controversial for some reason you know people didn't like the leases there was some feeling that you know we were tying up bottom that fishermen couldn't use and, and so I, I feel very committed that if someone sees my lease it's going to be as, as neat as I can make it, and I will sell you product cheaper than you will buy that anywhere. That relationship between fishermen and the consumer is so key to many of the stories we've been hearing this week. So let's hop up the coast and hear from Andrea Tomlinson. Andrea is the general manager of New Hampshire Community Seafood, a for-profit community-supported fishery co-op that offers a wide variety of fish and shellfish to its members. So everyone's really interested in this direct sales and I'm getting lots of people calling and saying, how can I support the fishermen? Where literally Hannah, every day I'm getting phone calls from media that was on locally two weeks ago and nationally last week. Everybody wants to support the local fishermen, which is great because I can not only tell them where they can get the, the lobster right off the boat. I can also say, Hey, check out our website <laughs> and we have memberships. We usually have an 816 or as I'd mentioned, 32 week annual is the, is the membership choice. And so what I've done also as a result of COVID is 
I have opened up our membership possibilities. In the past, I've noticed our retention in the last couple of years with um, members from the previous year has gone down. We used to have like a 60% retention rate, which is pretty decent. But I noticed an overall retention is going down. And I think it's because a lot of people don't feel comfortable committing to that weekly commitment because it's a weekly fish commitment. Then we have an optional shellfish share. So what I've done is I've developed a new flexible fish membership where you do not have to commit to any type of lengthy uh, membership. Even the eight week, you know, was the one I developed a couple years ago for people who didn't want that longer commitment. I have 240 people signed up in 10 days for that membership. I'm a glorified fishmonger, so I will work with the fishermen and the brokers the week before. Uh, by Usually by Friday or Saturday for the upcoming week, I'll know what we're serving. And it's interesting, I have to change my, my, my complete protocol this year because of this new flexible fish membership. I'm giving away all my industry secrets. Easy guys of people. Easy. Um, so what I have to do now is I have to change my, my um, newsletter day. I would typically send it out Monday and for the upcome for that week and let people know what's catch of the week. And if they don't like it, they can hold that week and double up on another week. I try and come up with a solution for everyone's excuse for not signing up. But now I've got to get the newsletter out on Friday because I've got to give all these flexible fish people the weekend to order. So I'm nervous about it. I predict what's going to happen is the more popular uh, fish weeks, I'm obviously going to have more signups. So you know, in this neck of the woods, haddock's very popular, but we can offer that every week because it's quite plentiful. But, you know, when I do cod or flounder or haddock for the actual catch of the week, I, I'm anticipating, you know, much larger um, orders than when I do white hake, king whiting, or dogfish shark. So I can kind of predict how it's going to go, but it's going to be a learning curve for me as far as anticipating what I need to order, because we pride ourselves on our fish being landed and delivered to the customer within 48 hours. So it's interesting to hear from Andrea there all the innovative things she's having to do to cope with this new and remade market for seafood that has resulted from COVID-19. And they're innovating not just in ways that support the fishermen and women, but often the entire fishing community. When the lobster price dropped to 225, and fishermen were going out, or lobstermen were going out and losing, you know, $400 for the day, basically. And they ju we just needed to sort of thin what was going into the distribution chain, thin out what was basically going to be shelved. That was Dr. Carla Gunther the chief scientist at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, sharing the realities of what's at stake in the absence of a market for shellfish. Carla partnered with local school boards and community volunteers to start the Lobsters for Lunch program to provide fishermen with a market for their catch and healthy lunches to school children in the community. Recognizing that some of the families here are low income and losing jobs and that there is going to be a, you know, a food risk to some of these families, the school stepped up and said, we'll feed every kid in our school union. And so we said, well, why don't we thin out that distribution and give those lobsters directly to the schools and the kids? You know, many of these kids in our, in our school district, because fishing is our lifeblood, 
they all can get lobster kind of at night when their dad comes home anyway. So some of them really love to eat lobster and it's not like a huge delicacy to them, but others are not in a fishing family and are not as exposed to lobster and definitely feel like, wow, this is quite a treat or have no palate for it at all. So it was met, the idea was met with a little bit of, um, huh, how many kids are going to eat lobsters? Why would you feed, you know, lobsters to kids when we have no market? And one of the fishermen here argued, yeah, but, you know, hot dogs are actually more expensive than lobsters are. <laughs> and why would you feed a kid lobster? They're going to eat hot dogs. They'd rather have a hot dog. But yeah, hot dogs were and are still more expensive than lobster. <laughs> so we're actually giving them a pretty cheap meal. And he called the schools and the school superintendent at our local school district said, yeah, that's great. That's great. And then he took an order from each of the schools and, and we ended up having to find volunteers to cook the lobsters and pick the lobsters. And then the schools distributed picked lobster meat in the form of lobster rolls to all their schools just last week. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I wish I was at the school. I would love to have lobster rolls for lunch. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, these kids aren't at school, are they? Or they're, are they home? No, or? They're all at home. They're all at home. And so something that's special about this particular, say, school district is that they recognized sort of the financial status of many of these households and that some people were being laid off and some people were maybe not having a lobster market if dad was fishing at the time. So, and the added stress of homeschooling and the added stress of not being able to get to the grocery store necessarily as frequently as one might want. And they decided that these meals were not only going to school-aged kids. If you had a kid any age, you know, home from college or in preschool or younger, they were sending meals home to those kids. Carla also noted that shellfish can be particularly tricky because, as we mentioned earlier, it must be kept alive just prior to eating. So fishermen must be confident in having a buyer for their catch waiting on shore. Otherwise, they risk losing their product and their income. You know, fish, we've just been able to, you know, fillet and, and ship all over the world for a very long time. <laughs> but depending on the shellfish, it doesn't have a very good shelf life. Like it's been developed as a local cuisine. So, I mean, I know like steamer clams, if they're not picked and frozen to be breaded and fried somewhere, you're not getting steamers anywhere. And lobster, we've only just started to figure out how to ship that within the domestic US. So yeah, it's kind of crazy how, how it is so regional. So we've talked about shellfish now all over the East Coast of the United States, and I'd like to make one more stop, and this time we're going to go all the way up to Huna, Alaska, a Tlingit community located just a few hours from Juneau and accessible only by boat or plane. Anthony Lindoff is the owner of Kawu Oyster Company, and I just want to start this out with his beautiful ode to Alaskan oysters. Alaska seafood, it's kind of, it's cachet, right? There's a 
there's a reason why Alaska seafood is is so is is seen as the pristine the best basically seafood in the world and certainly a lot of that has to do with how it's managed in a sustainable way the fisheries that is and how it's marketed and and certainly the water too right it's like the, the water provides i mean that's that's everything um but it's 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 taking all of those into consideration i guess as, as a collective but it's it definitely uh, it allows for like certainly something like an oyster, which is a filter feeder. Like just saying that you're an Alaskan oyster, you're a cold water Alaskan oyster, that perks everybody up. Everybody is just has this, there's an allure to it. It's just a very much layered experience. You know, it starts off with this kind of fresh, smacks you with this seawater type brininess and it has all of these kind of this carroty, lemon, melon type flavors. And each bite releases something different. It's not just a sweet oyster. It's not just a briny oyster. You know, you don't want to just, you know, throw them down the hatch, as they say. You want to kind of experience it. And that's what I think oysters are anyway, or it's something that's a, an experience that is fun. And so you parlay that in with something like uh, a cruise ship passenger who's, this is like kind of their bucket list is to come to Alaska. It just kind of elevates that whole experience. Like they, they're already kind of on cloud nine because they're, they're in Alaska. They're in Huna at Icy Strait Point, right? In Port Frederick. And it's just God's country. And then you have this like fresh seafood and Dungeness crab. You're seeing whales and that alone is the experience. And then you back it up with this, this oyster that's just really kind of just understated people. That's just this kind of surprise to even be there and, and enjoy it. With COVID-19, nearly all cruise ship traffic to Huna has been canceled for the 2020 tourist season. And this is leaving both the community of Huna and small business owners like Anthony in a really tough spot. And what we found with COVID-19 is perhaps we uh, have too many eggs in one basket, right? We've, so now there's no cruise ships and the, just the Im immense amount of revenue that was generated from say 150 ship calls versus to perhaps zero um, is staggering. And that's just from the, Icy straight point business side of things. That doesn't speak to the small operators. That doesn't speak to the hundreds and hundreds, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that's not going to be going to the city of Huna either. So it's staggering to think about the um, impact it's going to have in the future here, in the, in the not too distant future, because I don't think we've seen the impacts of it. And certainly the self-isolation and, and quarantining and stuff um, that's felt by everybody but you know in real time but I think this the economic impacts are going to lag behind and that's kind of what I'm really kind of most uh, concerned about. So for now Anthony is using this year toward diversifying his business model. So my first couple of years of harvesting oysters I didn't have that many oysters to really harvest right and so i was able to just offload 80 to 85 percent of my production to the cruise industry it was easy but in 2020 when i'm going to have twice as many oysters as i've ever had in terms of production wise of, of, of harvesting that just 
it pressured me to look at the kind of the direct marketing more. And so my story is a little bit different in that I'm coming from almost just wholesaling to the cruise industry, very little, if any, direct marketing. Not to say that to have zero focus on the cruise industry, like that's all going to be a major player for me in the future. But it's just, for me personally, it's just kind of made me realize that, you know, I guess I'm on the right track to, to, to like kind of just keep, keep going where I'm going and um, try and be, I guess the best thing I can do really is just be optimistic about it. Thanks for joining us. Social Fishing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today we heard from Mark Hooper, Andrea Tomlinson, Carla Gunther, and Anthony Lindoff. You're listening to Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw, available on the Free Music Archive. See you next time.